decision Marsha from Sadashi Inc. She is with LRN and we are going to discuss the role of the board of directors in response to the Harvey Weinstein scandal, the Me Too campaign, and general sexual uh, harassment awareness at the board. We explore how the conversation has changed, how part of the Me Too is now part of the national conversation, and more importantly, what it means for a board of directors and how they need to consider it. She talks about her article, The Value in Having a Difficult Conversation, and why now is the time to have that conversation, the role of senior management in that conversation, as well as the role of compliance. We hit on, or rather talk about, uh, topics around training for supervisors, managers, and coworkers of employees who may have been harassed, things they might see. We talk about LRN training on sexual harassment and how that ties into Marsha's uh, research and experiences in training and advising boards of directors. It's a fascinating exploration of one of the most current topics around. I know you will find a lot of useful information in it. I certainly learned a lot. This is Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. Today I have with me, and please forgive me if I butcher this name, Marsha Urshakahi Haynes. She is the Managing Director Strategy and Development at LRN. And she has been writing about, thinking about, talking about uh, sexual harassment, Me Too, and most importantly, or for our purposes, the corporate response to this, literally from the board of directors through the company. So, Marcia, uh, first, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Absolutely. It's great to be here, Tom. So, when the original Weinstein story broke, Marcia, um, I, uh, I have a uh, 21-year-old daughter, so I thought a lot about that. I thought a lot about my professional career and the things I've seen, and I certainly don't want her to have to go through uh, anything like that, and I don't know if if that was the response of many fathers, but um, the Weinstein uh, original scandal, uh, one of the reasons it, um, if not offended me, shocked me so much was there was clear knowledge at the board of directors level that this was going yeah. on, and they knew because they were approving settlements of sexual harassment claims. But now we have a much broader conversation, and that I think, or I would characterize it as the hashtag me too discussion. And I just wanted to maybe start with uh, setting the foundation of uh, how has, uh, from Weinstein to Me Too and even beyond, changed the conversation as you guys have seen it at LRN? Yeah, so um, I think it's a great way to kick off here. So I, I think that we would all agree that the the issues circling or surrounding sexual harassment are not new. And, and the patterns of behavior are not new. Uh, but I think that the particular case that exploded in the fall um, around Harvey Weinstein, and I think some other uh, similar situations where there was knowledge uh, and true enablement and complicity at the highest levels of organizations, has thrust a very uncomfortable conversation into the public sphere. 
And I think that's why it's become so compelling and you're seeing, um, you know, this this true movement around not only Me Too, where women were um, motivated and inspired to share their narrative and share their personal journeys, um, but it, it, it sort of culminated at the end of the year with Time Magazine uh, profiling um, essentially the person of the year as the silence breakers, um, the men and the women uh, and the individuals who truly spoke out and shared their stories very publicly, whereas I would say historically as a society, these are issues that have been typically shared uh, anonymously, confidentially, and privately. So I think this is where the movement has really shifted. You're seeing the power of the individual in communicating with many um, within seconds. So one of the things that struck me, Marcia, was that I really saw a link almost directly between a national conversation that started almost 25 years ago with Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill up through Weinstein and now beyond. And I can recall after the Anita Hill testimony discussing that with my mother, who I guess at that mm -hmm. point was probably in her early 60s, and her sort of response was, Oh, that that was that was all that happened. Well, she wasn't harassed, or that was it. And it and it really struck me that that was sort of my mother's generation, one of the you know early generations to go in the workforce. That was just accepted. And Anita Hill started a conversation that no, this is not acceptable. And now we've moved into something else. Do you see that, or do you see something different? Well, I think that you know Anita Hill was really a pioneer. Uh, demonstrating breaking the silence, and she was faced with dealing with that credibility gap um, that accusers typically will deal with, where the perception, whether it's based on role, um, it can even be race, socioeconomic, um, position in the organization, um, there she didn't have a lot of support, and the immediate uh, perception was she must have an alternate agenda. Um, there may be some general generational dynamics as well, where uh, there were certain perceived normative behaviors uh, that were limited to the role or the position that you were in. But nonetheless, her credibility was questioned. And I think that the access to knowledge and information was just not as readily as it is today, readily available as it is today. Uh, so, you know, when you kind of fast forward to what is acceptable today, there is a very clear line and delineation where public opinion is saying, hey, we're not going to tolerate this. And this type of behavior, whether it's how someone's communicating or how someone's physically acting, whether it, it hits the, the line of assault uh, per, or perceived discomfort, uh, I think that the national conversation that you're seeing right now is this is not acceptable. And because it is no longer acceptable, it's forcing a more clarifying conversation around societal and cultural norms in the workplace and truly outside the workplace. So you recently wrote an article, or I guess earlier, uh, or back in 2017, the value in having a difficult conversation could you tell us, right. uh, and you've been, I think, hitting some of the highlights, but why did you write this article and how have you been able to use this really as a teaching tool? 
Yeah, so great question, Tom. So I, I was noticing, you know, as, as an advisor to uh, practitioners in the compliance and ethics space, I spend a, I've had the benefit and the opportunity of working kind of in the, in the halls and corridors of companies. So I've, I've had a front seat to a spectrum of industries. And on this particular issue, I've noticed that one of the common trends was the discomfort in broaching some of the uncomfortable aspects of this topic. And certainly organizations have, you know, codes of conduct and they have policies in this area. But as you can see, you know, from some of the cases that you've pointed to, there was a gap between putting the policy into action and creating or fostering a culture that enabled or promoted uh, members of the workforce to feel comfortable in escalating their concerns and raising their voice. And then doubly, you know, as you mentioned, you're the father of a daughter. I'm the father of a daughter and a son. And a lot of what we, we've done in terms of raising our children center around having kitchen table conversations. And when I, when I kind of looked at what was going on nationally, I felt that it was important to pen or put my thoughts um, into a short and succinct set of advice. Um, and I centered it around kind of three elements that really I think are effective approaches in, in my 20 years in this industry uh, to impact change. And in this article, um, which is called basically, um, it was posted on LinkedIn, but it's called The Value in Having Difficult Conversations, I pointed to three things. And these three things are, number one, it's important for organizations to start to develop and coach their leaders around how to listen. Listening is not an easy skill. As a matter of fact, I think that the, the research shows that um, less than 2% of supervisors are even trained or coached or developed around how to listen. And I think there's another statistic that points to the fact that supervisors typically will interrupt an employee within just minutes of them escalating or raising a concern. So learning to listen is truly a first step. And if you look at the patterns of the, of the reports and the headlines we're seeing in the news, uh, there is a pattern where you are seeing from the, from the top highest levels of the organization, all the way, you know, from the ELT, C-suite to the board, um, concerns were falling on deaf ears. So even when victims are raising their voice and speaking out, no one is really listening or no one is willing to listen and take action. Um, the second component that I shared in this article, and again, this was my attempt of objectively providing practical guidance, was training is important, but it's not enough. And, and so this is where you want to take that active listening and create tools and resources for those influencers, those frontline supervisors who typically employees will raise their voice to, to practice not only having difficult conversations, but recognizing the red flags, recognizing um, the behavioral components. And this takes more than just training. It takes an experiential application, understanding how to take the, the purpose and the values of the code and the guidelines of the code and practice applying them into their everyday business context. Because if it's not relevant, then they're not going to be able to understand how to procedurally follow up on these concerns and these queries and the discomfort. Uh, and, then, and then lastly, I think the, the last component that I had touched upon in the article was around um, really having a, a single standard for behavior. Uh, 
So there can't be a we enforce this for we enforce the code or the policy for this segment of the population, but we have exceptions for this other segment of the population. Um, so there has to be a unified standard, uh, and there has to be accountability. And from the compliance and ethics practitioner perspective, understanding how to apply and enforce that accountability and demonstrating transparency to the, to the workforce uh, around procedural justice matters. You know, in, in a lot of times, organizations say, we want to drive a, a speak-out campaign. We want to create a speak-out campaign, but you can promote the benefits and the importance of employees raising their voice and speaking out and reporting misconduct, but if there isn't any transparency to how the company is taking action, what is the procedural justice around this? Are they investigating the allegations? Is there action taking? Um, if these roadmaps are not shared in, an, in a fair and equitable manner, then the likelihood of employees in speaking out is slim. Because after all, why speak out? Why bother? So, so you know, just coming back to the essence of why I wrote the article was I was trying to find a simple, short, succinct uh, message to share with practitioners um, in, in not only just, you know, compliance and ethics practitioners, but certainly HR, learning and development and others who are in a position of shaping policy and providing practical guidance. So one of the things that struck me about the Weinstein scandal was uh, that I, I touched upon the, the knowledge, certainly at the board of directors. When I thought back mm -hmm. in my career, I've worked in law firms, I've looked at, worked in corporations. Everyone knew who the harassers were. Uh, yep. They may have been given some cute nicknames, but everybody knew, period. And it got what the Weinstein scandal drove home to me was that it was no longer the responsibility of the person who was harassed, and that was almost always a woman, uh, to raise her hand. Uh, now it was the responsibility of me as a coworker. If I saw right. something, if I knew something, that uh, that was uh, the change for me. And you talked about giving uh, managers and supervisors the tools, the, not only the training, but the tools in the ex experiential application uh, to, mm -hmm. to do something. But it, can these same concepts be moved down to coworkers as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So when you look at what what is a good strategy look like uh, around raising awareness, educating the workforce on this issue, and then really developing the workforce's comfort level and taking action. Uh, yes, you're correct. Everyone always kind of knows there's kind of the silence in the hallways. Um, but complicity is a big issue. So finding opportunities to have, and again, that's why I wrote the article, the value in having difficult conversations is how can we as teams, as business units, as functional groups work together in having those difficult conversations so that when we observe um, misconduct of any sort, not just this sort, but if we're focused on sexual harassment, and we feel like it has crossed a line that needs to be raised, but the victim is not comfortable or does not feel safe raising their voice. How are we equipped as observers or bystanders to a situation to help enable action? 
And that is a very critical component of the training and the awareness uh, and the accountability across companies today. So what we're seeing, you know, when you when you look at it in terms of, you know, what can a compliance officer do? Uh, first of all, a compliance officer is going to really need to work with a cross-functional stakeholder group. So he or she can't lead this alone. Uh, they're the shepherd of the workforce culture, but they need to, as they develop and implement these tools, be working in alignment with HR and L&D, learning and development uh, or org development. Um, you, you really need to start to implement this dialogue across the organization, and it shouldn't be perceived as a compliance initiative. It should be perceived as a culture initiative, you know, developing a safe, ethical culture, a cu- culture that listens and a culture that's willing to take action. The uh, Is this message that you have articulated, uh, is this being well received either in the compliance community or the greater corporate world uh, since you started articulating it? Yeah, so so it's interesting to say this. So certainly in the, in the compliance and ethics com- community, there is a thirst for understanding what more can be done. And there's a natural inclination to, you know, first first stop, go to training. We must train more. So just just think of how the victim or the the accuser feels when he or she raises their voice and the first thing their company does is provide more training, right? So so there has to be there has to be a linkage to why are we doing this? and how this conversation is going to actually impact change. Um, companies today, and again, you, you, know, you and I are seeing the headlines. Um, it, it's not limited to uh, a Fortune 500 organization. It's not limited to an industry. It's not limited to, you know, we're seeing it in higher ed institutions. We're seeing it um, at the highest levels of some, t- some of U.S.'s uh, national athletic organizations. Uh, there is an appetite for building or rebuilding or reconstructing trust. And I think the erosion of trust is where companies, and specifically to your question, compliance officers are taking a few steps back and saying, you know what, this is not just something that we're going to slap some training on. We're going to peel the onion back and go to the board we're going to talk about how what is the role of boards in being accountable for the actions of the C-suite CEO, et cetera. We're going to take a look at the C-suite and look at how are we developing them to understand their responsibility around being champions and shepherds of trust. And then, sure, we're going to take a look at the workforce and see where we can rebuild and strengthen that culture around trust. Because, again, you could train, everyone will certify, folks will say, I'm I'm aware, but there is a trust gap where just because you know you've observed misconduct, you feel comfortable knowing that a line was crossed, yet you're not comfortable speaking out. And it's that inaction or that failure to take action because because the perception is that the company is not going to do anything. So one of the things that also struck me uh, as the conversations evolved uh, in the fall of 2017 up until today is that one uh, point you really just touched on, and it's trust. 
and how the Weinstein scandal could lead to a really a um, reorientation of corporations to not only bring trust uh, to certainly um, discrimination and sexual harassment, but to reintroduce it into the corporate life so that people would be willing to raise their hands and speak out for a wider variety of uh, nefarious acts that they might observe. Uh, is that is is your your thoughts on trust, your concepts about uh, what I would call the fair process doctrine? You called it, I think, procedural uh, fairness or procedural due process. Uh, do those all of those concepts really work in a much broader picture as well? Yeah. So you have to scale. You have to scale trust, but it starts with again the front line. So you may even have the buy-in at the board level. I mean, you're seeing some some large, high-profile companies right now completely transform and reshape their boards. You're seeing um, resignations on one end and new board members joined. You're seeing C-suites completely turn over. So compositionally and materially, you're seeing some of the leadership change, but ultimately, even if the new leadership has bought in to building uh, a trustworthy organization, uh, the actions and perceptions of the workforce will be based on what's happening locally on the ground. And on the ground is frontline management. So frontline management is not developed, coached, and truly held accountable. So we're talking, you know, re recalibrating how performance management is done in organizations, which is another entire, probably you You've done a podcast on this, but uh, compliance officers starting to have some difficult conversations with uh, other functional stakeholders around how are we truly measuring uh, the behavior of, of managers uh, in this area. So, so, yes, you can scale trust. It takes time, but it takes deliberate alignment and integration, not only between uh, decision makers at the top, but... Uh, truly the day-to-day action or inaction of middle management and the folks who are at the front line. Now, interestingly, in in the Weinstein case, there's been a lot of literature in this area and a number of articles, um, and there was one that I found fascinating uh, that Fortune had published called How a Handful of Billionaires Kept Their Friend Harvey Weinstein in Power. But it actually points to an interesting point that ultimately it wasn't his assault or alleged assault or behavior that that got him terminated, it was um, the code of conduct. And I I don't know how many people are aware of that. The board had had adopted a code of conduct and ethics, Mm -hmm. which he wanted an exception created for himself. So what they did is when they renewed his contract, they stapled this code code of conduct to the new contract. I think it was in 2015. Um, And ultimately, because in his... In his contract, he could only be terminated for two types of offenses. One was a conviction for a felony involving moral turpitude, which obviously would, you know, be sexual assault. Um, But the second one was that being accused of assault wasn't enough. It actually had to be um, investigated, and he had to be convicted. So because he had never been convicted of a felony because, you know, the board and, and the leadership team had settled all of these allegations... And so there was no conviction. That is why action hadn't been taken. So 
So ultimately, or surprisingly, and this is a great kind of lesson for compliance officers, is that because they had attached the new code of conduct to his contract, that provided them the authority to terminate him. So that's uh, actually what got Jeff Smizek, the former uh, CEO of United Airlines, and the uh, both Department of Justice and SEC action against United and their bribes, bribery of the former uh, director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey uh, was a violation of the Code of Conduct, and that was held to be an internal control violation. So that's how the SEC was able to bring an action against them. So that's uh, really interesting. Yeah, so so I, I strongly encourage for those listeners um, who are who are taking a look at dusting off their old code. <laughs> uh, remember that a code of conduct is is um, it's very important to make sure that you that that stated principle guidelines uh, and purpose driven uh, I would say document not be just a static document, but one that provides a framework that's dynamic. Um, keeps its finger truly on the pulse of actionable uh, decisions uh, because there there are a number of cases, not just this one, the two that we've referenced here, but a number of cases where ultimately um, it's the code that allows an organization to take action. So, Marcia, unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our time, but I was wondering if someone wanted to follow up uh, with yourself or perhaps check out LRN uh, on any of the topics we've touched on, uh, could they do so and how? Yeah, so thank you, Tom. Um, yeah, so uh, for your listeners, if you're interested in learning more, um, and you can go to lrn.com, and right on our landing page, we have guidance as to how you can learn more about our offerings around uh, sexual harassment awareness, education, and advisory services. So thank you very much for having me uh, on your podcast. Well, Marcia, thank you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only podcast that specializes in FCPA compliance released on a weekly basis. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. This is Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.